Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. So much happening in just over a week. We had world leaders gathering in Vienna to get back into uh, the 2015 GCPOA. Over the weekend, uh, Iran's main enrichment facility at Natanz was hit by an, a cyber attack. Uh, of course, uh, the Islamic Republic pointing fingers at Israel, but we don't have any confirmation of that yet. But what do they do in response? Uh, the Iranian government says, now that this happened, we are going to enrich uranium to 60%. Well, they've made the threat before, but now they are doubling down and saying, we're not backing down anytime soon. So what does the U.S. do? Well. We're meeting with them again in Vienna. As a matter of fact, new talks begin today, or I should say they resume today. And to make sense of all of this, because it doesn't make much sense to the average person, we will call upon uh, Gabriel Nerona. He is the former uh, State Department Special Advisor to Iran. And before that, um, I should say while he was doing that, he coordinated policy and directed the State Department's communication and congressional affairs for Iran under President Trump. And he previously worked as Special Assistant for the Senate Armed Service Committee and Currently, he is executive director for two new foreign policy initiatives based in Washington, speaks four languages, uh, and uh, of course, Spanish, Russian, Mandarin, and English, um, two very, very important languages for what we're dealing with in foreign policy. So uh, no wonder you are such a foreign policy star, Gabriel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Uh, you know, it's interesting for, for you, especially, um, I know I've been covering this for, for years and have been following the uh, foreign policy trajectory uh, coming out of the White House with regards to Iran and how vastly it has differed, um, especially with the last three presidents um, going from, you know, appeasement back to, you know, let's isolate and punish and put pressure on Iran back to appease them. But things are very different right now. Uh, obviously, things have moved um, quite a bit with regards to the Iranian regime, the realities on the ground. It doesn't look too good. doesn't look too good. So, you know, how does it look from your seat? Let's start there. So uh, it's, it's interesting what you said about how it sort of changed so much from three presidents. Um, you know, before the JCPOA, Iran policy was actually fairly bipartisan. There was this unified um, agreement that we had to deal with Iran's malign behavior and, and treat them as an enemy. Um, and the JCPOA changed that um, with large elements of the Democratic Party being really wedded to the JCPOA and almost viewing it with uh, almost religious fanaticism of having to protect it at all costs. Um, now we're in the, we've done three years of maximum pressure. It took, it took a long time to actually get to full steam. And when that happened, uh, Iran's economy and their political structure were incredibly weakened. Um, over the, over the, over this week, we saw that Iran's foreign currency exchange, um, reserves, uh, plummeted from over 120 million down to just four, uh, sorry, billion to just four billion. Um, their military spending plummeted by 28% one year and then 25% this year, really in dire straits. Um, and it's President Biden who has now sort of halted maximum pressure. And it's really given the regime a lifeline that they needed. Um, it looks like their economic growth is, is coming back. Um, and that's not a good negotiation position to have. If you're going to be trying to get a, a deal, you want them to be the desperate ones. Um, instead, unfortunately, it seems that it's the United States who are the ones who are so desperate for a deal. We're the ones talking about it. Um, Biden and Blinken and, and uh, Rob Malley are the ones 
all the time talking about what can we do to get Iran to the table when it should be the other way around. We're not hurting. We're not, you know, our economy is doing fine. Uh, we're not under military, imminent military threat. So it should be Iran who is begging to come to the table, not not us. Right. And why? I mean, you know, it makes no sense to any average person. Like you said, it was bipartisan because it's a common enemy. You can look at what they're doing, whether it's the human rights abuses, whether it's the exporting of terror in the region, whether it's obviously all the, the numbers with regards to their nuclear programs. This is not a peaceful program. This is not, you know, an educational infrastructural program. Um, you know, why? You know, it's it's I, every guest I have on here. I I, I always want to, to get an answer. It, why? Why were you know uh, Biden, Harris, Blinken, Malley? These are all somewhat you know seasoned politicians, statesmen. They've they understand diplomacy. They understand a basic deal. They understand when you know from kindergarten when you're on the playground. You know, I'll give you this toy if you give me that one. It, it has to be a fair deal. And this doesn't sound like anything like a fair deal. And as you said, we're in a, in a position where there's a, is a ripe opportunity where Iran has been, um, has, has come to a place where they are vulnerable, where we can exert more pressure in order to get the outcome that we want. Why all this gymnastics to push forward with a deal that makes no sense? It's, it's a great question. I think there's there's two reasons. One, they ran for, for four years on sort of this, everything Trump does is bad and we have to reverse it. Um, and so there's a large element within the administration which sort of says, we condemn Trump for, for leaving the deal and therefore as sort of a campaign promise, we have to go back into it, even though it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, now you have other elements within the administration. You have National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who seems to be, and some of his staff, who seem to be actually a lot more wary of it. And they don't actually think it's a great deal, but they seem to be getting completely overridden by Secretary Blinken and Rob Malley in the interagency discussions and, and debates, um, which is really quite unfortunate. Because like you said, there are, there are some smart people, seasoned people, um, but they're getting outmaneuvered by really sort of the progressive wing of, of the left um, who is dead set. And, and this, is, this is sort of how I explain it. It's not so much about the negotiation that they love the JCPOA. It's really, in their view, an attempt to reshape the Middle East. And they don't actually think we should have, uh, we should be treating Israel and Saudi Arabia and UAE like allies and partners. They think that we should be balancing everyone against each other. And that way we are more close with, with Iran um, than we, or we're equally as close with Iran as we are with Saudi Arabia. And that's the mistake uh, Obama made back in 2014, 2015, trying to uh, play the two against each other when it's, it's ridiculous. Saudi Arabia and Iran are, are worlds apart. Saudi Arabia is not um, killing Americans and threatening death to Israel and death to America every, every week. Um, Iran is, and we really need to treat it differently. And so the problem is that Biden has this very warped, or his advisors at least, have this very warped idea of how we can restructure the Middle East. It's their grand strategy. And that, I think, is at the real core of why they're trying to get back into the JCPOA. Yeah, speaking of reshaping the Middle East, because you, you mentioned it, um, a lot was done under President Trump's four years in in actually reshaping the Middle East, more than had been done in decades. Um, the Abraham Accords, of course, the um, realignment with our ally Israel, um, moving the embassy, doubling down on the Golan Heights and confirming that, and um, really just 
reshaping the Middle East in a way that's not just good for us and our allies in the West, but good for the Middle East and its future Absolutely. and the people there. Um, and to that end, you know, the people in Iran are probably looking around and saying, we want a piece of that. We, we want that too. We want the apps. We want the technology. We want to move forward with everybody else. We, want to be, we don't want to be stuck in the dark ages because of our government. We had, of course, um, Victoria Coates and Len Kodorovsky on this show talking about the um, the Cyrus Accords, which would be kind of like a uh, parallel to the Abraham Accords, bringing Iran into the fold with Israel, of course. I mean, that's light years away with regards to, I mean, if you compare it to the way that we're headed with, with our current administration. But my question to you is, the reality on the ground has changed significantly. So um, whether it's Blinken or Biden or Kamala Harris, who comes into the White House wanting to go back to an Obama era, it didn't make sense then, but it makes less sense now. How much, I mean, what kind of um, pushback will they receive? What will it look like? And what are the new challenges in the new Middle East that they are facing now? That's a great question. I'll, I'll give a couple of facts that might sort of explain to the audience just how things are different. Um, if you look at uh, Iran these days, mosque attendance is at about 20%. It's actually one of the most secular nations in the Middle East, even though it's sort of this theocratic Islamic Republic. The, the youth these days are incredibly disenchanted with the rule of the mullahs. And a lot of the people in power are folks who you know, did the resolution 42 years ago. These guys are in their 70s, 80s, sometimes in their 90s. These are the folks who are running things. And so all the time now, we're seeing stories of Ayatollahs who are in charge of things dying off. And you have a lot of the leaders of the IRGC who all were the generals in the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s. That was the days when you know the population, there was a little bit more, they, they had just sort of participated in the revolution, some of them there's a little bit more buy-in. It's completely different now. The youth today hate the IRGC. They hate the mullahs. They don't even care much about, about Shia Islam. And so if you're trying to do a deal which is accommodating this regime, you're not doing that. You're not doing something that the people actually want. You're actually doing something in diametric opposition to the wishes of the people in Iran. Right. Um, and, and people have said that. We've been trying to bring attention to that for many years, actually having the voices of the people in Iran, what they want, why they go out onto the streets. And speaking of going out onto the streets, I know you uh, tweeted heavily about this. We, we tried to bring a lot of attention um, at the foreign desk as well on, um, and I want to jog people's memories. We've had years of protests, and these are real freedom fighter protests, most mostly peaceful protests with Iranians coming out onto the streets for various reasons and various uh, catalysts that bring them out onto the streets. But the bottom line for all of them is that we're done with this regime. This doesn't serve us. They're serving the people of, of uh, Syria and the Palestinians, and they're serving Hamas and Hezbollah, but they're not serving us. Uh, we're tired of the executions. We're tired of the human rights abuses. That's what the people on the street are saying. And um, these fire squads come out and just shoot at them. I mean, the last round of protests we had um, in 2019, they just came out shooting at these protests, uh, protesters. And um, some, some 
reports said 300, 400. Reuters came out and said 1,500. Now, 1,500 for people who are actually following what's going on on the ground was also a very low estimate because people in Iran are telling me 3,000, 4,000. Now, last week, the State Department removed this this number, 1,500, that, that this even happened, basically rewriting history. Now, what's going on here? How it's, can... I mean, it's how incredibly can sad. It's incredibly disappointing. So I was the lead uh, at the State Department for human rights on Iran um, and helped write that report, which documented how it was 1,500. So let's let's sort of level set. There are... It's, it's difficult to know every single person killed in Iran because the police and the IRGC hide it up and they threaten families. And they say, if you talk to the press, we'll put you in prison. But there's one group of people that know exactly how many Iranians were killed and it's the Iranian government. Um, They keep immaculate statistics. They are in touch with the morgues. Um, They know everything, It's, it's the government. And so the best way to actually tell how many were killed is you ask officials in the government. And that's what Reuters did. And they had, it was either two or three officials who were fairly senior. And I know the reporter um, who, who did this reporting and their methodology is, is excellent. Um, that report came in and they said it was 1,500 Iranians killed. And that's sort of at least. I've seen the reports that it could be 3,000. It could be. I don't know. I'm not the one to be able to decide this. The Iranian officials are the ones to decide it, and they've told us it's 1,500. So why did the U.S. say it was 300? It's it's really disappointing and appalling um, that they would that they would sort of lowball that estimate. Um, they also, from my experience, aren't trying to find the truth. They're not looking to find inconvenient statistics about the Iranian regime. They're not looking to um, make arrests or uh, interdictions of Iranian weapon sales right now because it's an inconvenient report that will get in the way of their negotiations in Vienna right now. They're really wholeheartedly trying to get back in the JCPOA. And unfortunately, they're willing to look past Iranian terrorism, cyber attacks, human rights violations, if that's what's necessary to get back in the deal. And that's really disappointing. What were some of the things that you saw in doing these reports on human rights in, in Iran? And um would you summarize you know would you would you conclude that we should leave human rights out of the equation when dealing with iran we we can't we really can't so the the thing that hurt me the most was there was this report um in the november protests about the city of marshar which is in the southwest uh in kuzestan i believe and there were a bunch of protesters who had fled the IRGC and they hid in these marshes. And we have video of what happens next where the IRGC pulls up in pickup trucks and they just start spraying the marsh with, with machine gun fire. And then they light the marsh on fire and tried to burn protesters alive and get them to flee so they could shoot them. Just disgusting, disgusting things that really have stayed with me. So here's here's what we should have as a standard. If you want business to come back into Iran, if you want Boeing or any of these companies to do business in Iran, it has to be with an Iran that respects its own people and where that business is actually going to be helping the Iranian people live dignified, free lives. And so my, you know, in my world, I, if I were the negotiator, I would say if you want economic development, you want economic incentives, that has to be conditioned 
on you treating your people fairly and according to the rule of law, like any other country would. Right. And we can't, we can't just leave it out of the picture and leave the Iranian people, you know, to suffer um, just because we don't want Iran to enrich uranium at a certain percentage and, and leave the Iranian people to suffer as a result. It's, it's the wrong decision and it would be disastrous, unfortunately, to them. Meanwhile, um, White House spokesperson had this to say about uh, getting back into uh, talks with Iran. I want to get your reaction on the other side. Take a listen. Well, um, I would just reiterate that we don't have any uh, additional speculation to add to the cause or the origin of uh, the attacks over the weekend. What our focus is on uh, is on the diplomatic path forward. Uh, and we believe in the diplomatic conversations, though they will be indirect, will reconvene uh, tomorrow in Vienna. We know this will be a long process, but we certainly see that as a positive sign. Our understanding is they plan to attend um, tomorrow. Uh, we, are, we are also very open-eyed about how this will be a long process. It's happening through indirect discussions, but we still feel that it is a step forward. I mean, she keeps repeating forward, forward. That's all they're, they're focused on. And we, we know, we acknowledge it's going to be a long path forward. I mean, you say that, like you, you said in the, in, in the beginning of the show, that when you want to convince someone of something, when you want to bring them in and the, you don't have the upper hand, you say it's going to be a long process, but we'll get there, right? I mean, what's your reaction to all of this? So first, my impression is they'll stay at the negotiating table as long as it takes for them to capitulate and to Iran is, is what I think. Uh, and the longer that Iran holds out, the more the United States is willing to give up in the negotiations, which is problematic. Um, here's another thing that's wrong with the negotiations. Who's there? It's not anyone that's actually affected by the day-to-day -day activities of the Islamic Republic. Israel's not there, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iraq, Kuwait, Bahrain. None of the countries that are actually impacted by Iran getting a nuclear weapon or Iran furthering their, their terrorist activity, get a seat at the table, they don't get a say. Um, it's very similar to you know, Europe in the, eight, in the 19th century carving up Africa and saying, oh, guess you guys aren't here at the table, you'll just have to live with whatever decisions we mm -hmm. make for you guys. And then we want you to accept those results. It's, it's deeply insulting to the rest of the Middle East that Europe and Russia and China are the ones who are talking to Iran. We're not even in the room with Iran and we're accepting uh, the Europeans and Russians and Chinese ferrying the messages between us. It's, it's just set up very wrong to begin with. Right, and it doesn't look good when you have last week um, a GOP-led um, letter um, that basically put Biden on notice and said, Congress isn't gonna be bound by any deal that you guys, you guys can go out and you can do all your negotiations, but when you come home, don't expect us to to accept this. Um, I mean, that that looks awful, doesn't it, on the world stage? It does. And look, if, if Biden wanted something that could get Americans to agree to it, it's easy. There's a there's a whole process. It's called a treaty, and you you get a deal and you submit it to the Senate as a treaty. And if two thirds of the Senate uh, approves of it, then it becomes binding and sort of effectively U.S. law. And that's the root that President Trump and, and Brian Hook and Elliot Abrams and Secretary Pompeo promised to the American people. They said, if we're gonna make it a deal, we'll, it'll, it'll be strong enough that we'll allow the people to vote on it. And that's what Biden should do. Instead, what he's trying to do, um, the sort of secret path he's doing, is he's trying to circumvent any vote in Congress at all 
by pretending that he's going back to the same deal um, uh, that you had in 2015, even though that deal's completely gone, it's, it's dead. Um, and so if I were the Iranians, what I would say is, hey, if I make one of these weak deals with the United States, yeah, they are gonna rip it up in three years if there's a Republican in office. Uh, and so I'd be a lot more wary of making any deal with the United States uh, because you have Republicans saying, look, we won't honor it. Uh, so if I'm Iran, I would say, okay, you want a deal? Bring it to the Senate too. We want Congress to have a vote in this if they're the ones who are gonna rip it up in three years. You know, it's not just Republicans, though, right? As you said, there are people inside, whether it's Jake Sullivan or, um, you know, I know there are Democrat um, senators who are, are as vocal as they can be. Um, yeah. You know, are are they being heard? Uh, probably not much. Um, it's important to remember three of the most powerful Democrat senators uh, voted against the JCPOA. Robert Menendez, who's the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Chuck Schumer, who's now the majority leader. Um, they both voted against it and were, said it was a horrible deal. And so they're still now the two most important senators, and they're going to have a lot of opposition. Um, what I think they're doing is they're probably making their voice heard, but very quietly and privately, um, sort of like what Israel was doing until about last week. They were trying to do this in private. They weren't trying to sort of attack Biden right out of the gate. But once they saw where this negotiation was leading, Israel started becoming a lot more public and saying, we're not having this. This is not going in a good direction. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more Democrats come out too and say, this doesn't make any sense. This is worse. This isn't just the JCPOA. This is worse because we're six years closer to everything expiring. Um, and that's why I think you're going to see a lot of people in Congress, Republicans and Democrats, opposing what the Biden administration is looking at doing. You know, for the average person, can you walk us through the hierarchy here? Um, I mean, let's say somebody like yourself who's an advisor um, in the State Department. I mean, how influential is a voice like in your position or, um, you know, how influential can Congress or Senate be down the line? I mean, can you walk us through who can put a stop to this? Who can make their voices heard? Or, you know, is this just going to be pushed through, you know, fast and furious as, as we expect it to be? So one thing I learned when I was a staffer is you can affect the details and you can provide good recommendations. At the end of the day, the buck stops with the president. Um, now the secretary of state has a lot of input and they're gonna be telling the president you can do option A or option B and the president will pick them there. Um, the staff are largely there to sort of execute and inform and, and help guide those decisions. Um, so. You know, the people making the decisions, it's going to be Rob Malley, it's going to be Blinken and ultimately President Biden. What can Congress do? Uh, Congress can do two things. One, they can send a very strong signal to the White House that any deal that doesn't have their approval isn't going to cut it and it won't last uh, more than two years or four years and then they'll, they'll rip it up. And, and the thing is, the Iranians actually pay attention to what people in Congress say. They don't often talk about it a lot, but they're always listening. And so what members of Congress and, and the Senate say, uh, it goes a long way. And so the other thing that they can do is they can pass legislation that says Biden isn't allowed to make this agreement at all without, um, without getting their approval first. So there's, there's a lot of things that uh, people can do. And it's really important that people listening, if you want to contact your Congress member or Senator and say, hey, I 
strongly opposes negotiations. It's going to be bad for for the Middle East, for my family back in the Middle East, if you have any. Um, people, members of Congress will listen to that. And it's important that you that you talk to them. You know, um, answer this question for us, because I get I get this question a lot. And it's, it's a valid question. People wonder, um, why, what's so bad about Iran getting a nuclear weapon? A lot of countries have it. A lot of maybe um, questionable countries have it. Why can't Iran have one? It's a good question. Um, I think there's, there's a couple, well, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, most importantly, Iran has attacked and conducted terrorist attacks on more than 40 nations over the last 40 years. And they don't, they don't care. It's, they've attacked Belgium. They've attacked Japan. They've attacked Australians. Um, Americans, so they have they have they don't really care who you are as long as you are in their way of their agenda. They have no problem attacking you. The next thing is look at how they threaten the world without nuclear weapons. They will kidnap they'll kidnap journalists, they'll kidnap hostages, um, they'll take tankers, and that's just to get a couple million dollars as hostage as sort of your the the payment for the hostages. Imagine if they had a nuclear weapon, what they would hold the world hostage to. They would, they would one, they threaten to destroy Israel, and they might actually go out and, and do that. Um, but they would just blackmail the United States and Europe and Middle East for anything and everything they wanted. And they'd say, if you don't do this, cool, we'll, we'll, we're willing to threaten you with our nuclear weapons and our nuclear arsenal. Um, it would completely change the Middle East, too you'd start to see a nuclear arms race, which is probably pretty close to being started right now with all the other countries in the Middle East who would be threatened by Iran and say, we want a nuclear weapon too. And if you look at the last you know, 60 years uh, in world history, it's this, uh, there's been so much effort by the world powers to stop the increase of nuclear weapons uh, growth throughout the world. And if you allow the JCPOA to, to come back in, what you're gonna see is you're gonna see, you know, another three, four, five countries start getting nuclear weapons. It's very dangerous. What's dangerous about not getting back into a deal on, on the flip side? So I think there's, there's some danger of um, having a real rift with some of our allies in Europe. We want, it's a good thing if we can be on the same side as the United Kingdom, France, and Germany. Um, and, Unfortunately, um, they've picked the wrong direction, in my view. They want to get back to the deal. Um, one good thing about the negotiation, this is maybe the only good thing about the negotiations happening right now, is the Iranians are being so unreasonable that the Europeans are getting pretty fed up with them. Right. And they're sort of saying, okay, we've, we've even offered to go back in the deal, which is a sweetheart deal for you. If you turn down that offer, you know, what are we going to do? Um, and so it's possible um, that they would initiate the so-called snapback sanctions and that they would reimpose sanctions against Iran. That would be, that would be a good step. Um, and so I think it is important that we get on the same page with them. Russians and Chinese, they're, they're hopeless. They will always have Iran's back no matter what. Um, and we shouldn't be calling them partners, which is Correct. what Secretary Blinken and Rob Malley are, are calling them these days. Yeah, they, they should not be at that table um, because obviously they don't have the same intentions as, as we do. Um, they so. also don't have anything to offer Iran. They're not, they don't have sanctions to withdraw. There's, there's really no point in them being there at all, except 
they're going to have Iran's back. To push forward, right. Right. Um, and, and speaking of, of China, you know, this is another area of your expertise. I wanted to get your thoughts on the 25 year deal that was announced between China and Iran just a couple of weeks ago. This was um, many years in, in, well, I should say many months in the making and, and announced now. Um, you know, the Iranian regime seems to be so uh, tactful about their um uh, timing of of announcements and propaganda, and it's no coincidence that they that they decided to flex their muscles once again and say, oh, "Well, we don't need any of you to buy our oil. We have the best partner. We've got the Chinese people, four hundred billion over twenty five years." What's the significance, short term and long term, about this deal? Um, first, you mentioned the word propaganda. I think propaganda is a really good word for what this deal is. Um, a little historical context. Uh, China routinely makes these big sweeping announcements with other countries, um, even from Russia to all these sort of third world countries in Africa. And they promise all this investment. Um, and then they don't actually do a whole lot of it. Um, it's exaggerated and it's made to look China look, make China look powerful and make the other countries look like they're about to get a bunch of investment um, so that they're usually corrupt leaders um, get a little, uh, get get more public approval. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that this sort of $400 billion figure is at all possible. Um, based on previous trends, uh, Iran's economy just isn't big enough to, to do that. Um, here's the other thing. You can look at, say, uh, Iran and its trade with Venezuela. Venezuela is halfway across the world. Why is it trading with Venezuela? The answer is, because no one else will. All of its other countries, all the other countries have completely uh, isolated Iran. They don't want to have anything to do with it. China is another example. Even though, you know, by all normal reasons, Iran should hate China. Iran, China is locking up a million Uyghurs, many of whom are Muslim, in concentration camps. And Ali Khamenei pretends that he serves as protector of the Muslim people throughout the world. He should be condemning China uh, for putting Muslims in concentration camps. Instead, they're sort of begging at China's feet that, oh, please do some economic deals with us. Um, it's insulting to, to it's probably uh, difficult for Khamenei to even do it himself because um, it's so almost emasculating. Um, and so I think we should not view too much into this China-Iran deal. Um, and what they want is they want us to say, oh no, they're, they're getting this great deal. The best thing we can do is go back in the JCPOA and, and mend fences and it'll draw China and Iran further away from each other. That's not going to happen. Um, the best thing we can do is keep the pressure on, sanction Chinese companies and oil companies, especially who are doing business with Iran. Uh, under uh, Secretary Pompeo, we sanctioned a huge number of Chinese companies who are doing business with Iran. Unfortunately, uh, Secretary Blinken hasn't made any economic sanctions at all uh, since he's taken office. Do you think they understand the threat of curbing China um, overall, I should say, as, as, a, as, as its own um, you know, foreign policy issue not related to Iran? Do they understand that threat? Some people do, but I don't think they're willing to take the strong enough measures um, to really do that. And, and this sort of depends who you look at within the government. There are some people who are doing, doing excellent work. 
one thing that I've I've noticed is they're really not trying to they're not viewing the genocide of the Uyghur people with enough seriousness. Uh, the Biden administration sort of hemmed and hawed for a few weeks about whether they even wanted to call it a genocide. Um, and I think this is more this is really a problem with American society and progressives. If you look back 12, 15 years ago, it was actually usually liberals who were talking about Tibet and free Tibet and how we need to stand up for the people of Tibet. Unfortunately, the left and progressives are almost silent now mm -hmm. about the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And it's, it's really unfortunate and disturbing to me um, that they haven't said and done more. Um, I think you see a lot of Republicans being the ones who are talking about it the most and saying, hey, we need to have sort of an economic boycott of anything that is um, contributing to this genocide going on right now. Yeah, we always say that. We say that it's the conservatives who are talking about the women in Iran or about the, even the gays in Iran or yeah. you know, all the, the young journalists in Iran being rounded up. You're not hearing anyone on the left. They're just pushing for a deal that appeasement is going to make everything magically go away. Um, in your opinion, um, this is a big question, so you can take your time with it. What's the best case and worst case scenario that can come out of Vienna? The best case is there is no deal. And I actually think this is probably the most likely scenario is a lot of people are talking about a deal. I I actually think the two sides are a lot further away from making a deal than, than most people realize. Wait, I want to ask you, do you think, I just want to ask you, do you think it's because Iran has overplayed its hand? That's part of it. They also are... They, the hardliners didn't even like the JCPOA to begin with, and they want to stop us from, they want to stop from getting into uh, the JCPOA right now. I think they are being greedy. I think they are sort of overplaying their hands. But I think there's also a lot of folks, and maybe this is why they're overplaying their hands, who actually don't want a deal to begin with. Folks like Zarif absolutely want it. And a lot of your sort of... Do you actually believe that, uh, Gabriel? Or do you think, and I just... I, I think it looks more like a good cop, bad cop situation where, you know, some of them are saying, oh, no, 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 don't even, we don't even want it. You know, don't even, I know there was a headline um, where they said, we were not even going to look at the offers that were put on the table in Vienna last week. Oh, there's, there's definitely the good cop, bad cop routine is, is always happening. Um, but it's all, it's also interesting when you sort of read Iranian newspapers of what they're saying when they don't think the West is listening. Um, they actually kind of, are attacking their own negotiators too. Um, so it's it's not, in my view, quite as clear cut as we think it is. Mm -hmm. um, now you talked about the worst, so the best case scenario is they just sort of say, yeah, actually we don't want this deal. Um, and Or the United States realizes this doesn't make any sense and, and they listen to people in Congress and they say, okay, you know, this, this doesn't work for us. The worst case scenario is you go back in the JCPOA. And what Iran is asking right now is they want the United States to end all the sanctions since 2015, right. end those immediately. And then Iran will consider ending its nuclear sort of extortion racket that it's been doing. That would be the truly worst scenario if the US is global enough to fall for that. Yeah, if they um, blink first, right? Yeah, and um, which outcome will happen? I'm not certain. I think, you know, I think this is going to take 
sometime. I don't think this will be, I don't think the final outcome will be clear until probably this later this summer, um, if there is one at all. I could be, I could be wrong, but I think it's going to take quite some time. And I hope that's true because uh, the longer that it takes, the, long, the more opportunity there is for the United States to wake up and say, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, or at least maybe our European counterparts can knock some sense into us if, if we're not the ones to you know, see the reality. In, in 2014 and 2015, the French, if you can believe this, were actually the ones saying to John Kerry, saying, come on, this you're not even negotiating hard enough. It was the French who were pushing for a stronger deal. And Kerry was the one that said, oh, no, we can't be that mean to Iran. We have to give oh, no. them exactly what they want. <laughs> Right. I mean, I, I still have to dig to the bottom of this as to why these people are so, um, you know, so, so enthusiastic about appeasing, you know, terrorists who have blood on their hands, who have, you know, they have not one honest bone in their body when they come to the negotiating table. Um, and their their bottom line is not diplomacy, that's for sure. But um, thank you so much, Gabriel. Why don't you tell us what you're working on, if you can? Uh, where we what we could watch, where to look for you, and how to follow your work. So I uh, I am leading two new foreign policy organizations. Um, they haven't been announced quite yet, um, so you'll hear more from me in the in the coming weeks. Um, my big work I'm working on right now is trying to get Congress to really stand up and say um, that they will and must demand a vote on any agreement that Biden uh, gets. Um, right now, Biden is trying to. Do this thing and some democrat senators are are with him to bypass congress altogether mm -hmm. um and they don't want to have to take a hard vote on the bad deal uh that they get and so i'm spending a lot of my time uh working to make sure that doesn't happen okay we will definitely follow that we'll report on it at the foreign desk and of course tweet out anything that um is newsworthy coming out and we've been we've been uh putting your twitter handle on on the screen so people know where to find you um thank you so much for your service thank you so much for your uh wonderful wonderful work and for coming on our show and thank you uh, very much for having go, me on lisa go follow him he's a smart smart guy and to the rest of you who'd like to sign up for our weekly top 10 email go to foreigndesknews.com and to sign up for our weekly podcast you can go to youtube.com slash lisa Daftari, and we will see you all next week but before i forget on monday night we will have another foreign policy power panel we have a wonderful lineup of guests with bijan kian and michael rubin from aei and of course shiwei wang who was the hostage who was held in iran for over three years they will discuss the iran deal the china iran um deal that was struck for 25 years and we will talk about the future of middle east foreign policy please tune in Monday night, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. We hope to see you then. Bye-bye.